always a joy and exciting thing to be able to stand before you in spite of myself, but to to open the Word of God and for us to consider God's Word uh, together. Now, you know, I've had some conversations with some of you individually in the last little while. We Several of us got together yesterday and had some conversation just about the church and, and, and some things that may uh, be upcoming. Um, and one of the things that I think I, it was I who said it is that right now we are experiencing a great deal of excitement. We meaning me and my family, are very excited. I sense excitement amongst many of you uh, in, in this place. Um, my prayer is that we understand that our sense of excitement is not conditioned upon our circumstances. Being excited can be merely an emotion that runs along the roller coaster of life, right? And when things are going good, we're good. We're excited. When things are going bad, not so much. Or our excitement could be rooted in God himself. You see, because if that's where our excitement is rooted, then our circumstances will not change that. Sure, they'll be good and they'll be bad. But the difference is the excitement will come within itself and what he is busy about in, the, in our midst. We know that God has already said that he will use the church to accomplish his purposes. That's you. That's me. If you are a believer today. And so we can be confident that the days ahead hold for them excitement when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to be considering um, some circumstances that are not so positive. But yet seeing how God is right in the midst of even the circumstantial stuff that none of us would ever want in our own lives. You may have heard of Horatio Spafford. He was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago with a lovely family. A wife, Anna, and five children. However, they were not strangers to tears and tragedy. Their young son died with pneumonia in 1871. And in that same year, much of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire. Yet God in his mercy and kindness allowed the business to flourish yet again. So on November 21st, 1873, a French ocean liner was crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe with 313 passengers on board. Among the passengers were Miss Spafford and their four daughters. Although Mr. Spafford had planned to go with his family, he found it necessary to stay in Chicago to help solve an unexpected business problem. He told his wife he would join her and the children in Europe a few days later. His plan was to take another ship. About four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, the ocean liner collided with a powerful iron-hulled Scottish ship. Suddenly, all of those on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly brought her four children to the deck. She knelt, with, she knelt there with Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanita and prayed that God would spare them if that could be his will or to make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Within approximately 12 minutes, the ocean liner slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including the four Spafford children. A sailor rowing a small boat over the spot where the ship went down spotted a woman floating in the piece of the wreckage. It was Anna, still alive. He pulled her into the boat, and they were picked up by another large vessel, which nine days later landed them in Wales. 
From there, she wired her husband a message which began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Mr. Spafford later framed the telegram and placed it in his office. Another of the ship's surveyors, Pastor Wise, later recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. Mr. Spafford booked passage on the next available ship and left to join the grieving wife. With the ship about four days out, the captain called Spafford to his cabin and told them they were over the place where the children went down. According to Bertha Spafford Vester, a daughter born after the tragedy, Spafford wrote, It is well with my soul while on this journey. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. We're not promised that our lives will be a bed of roses. In fact, anybody who's lived long enough, you understand that trials and tragedies and calamities and disasters come. But most often... When those come upon us, we are very quick. Those of us, I'm I'm speaking of, those of us who claim to be believers in our great God, we are very quick to, to say things like, well, the devil's hard at work, and things like that. And we always accredit these kinds of things to just Satan and wickedness alone. However... There are times, as hard as it may seem, that the Bible paints a little bit of a different picture. While that is certainly true much in our lives, listen to passages like Isaiah 45, 7. Where God declares, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Amos 3, 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Wow, that's not the way you and I often think, is it? It's a very difficult pill for us to even begin to try to wrap our minds around it. Really, God sometimes causes calamity. God sometimes brings about disaster. Now, you need to understand at the very onset that I am in no way saying that God is the author of evil. Ever. He is not. And there's a paradox that's built into this reality that I myself cannot reconcile in my heart and my mind. But nevertheless, I read the word and I, I realize that somehow, some way, even in the midst of some of the tragedies and calamities of life, that God himself is at work in our midst. When his brother, think about some of the stories like Joseph, when his brothers who were envious and jealous decided at first they were going to kill him, but then decided to sell him into uh, slavery for the duration of his life. And then what does Joseph himself declare at the end of Genesis? What you intended for evil, God intended for good to preserve alive a family. Think about Job. What does Job say? And if you know the story of Job, we know it's very clear that in the beginning of the story, we find Satan going before God and asking permission to cause trouble for this servant, Job. 
Because if he does, Job would not follow God. And God says, you may do it, only do not touch him. And then eventually, God allows Satan to actually touch him physically. And what does Job, or how does Job respond? And remember, this is the word of God that declares this to us. God himself speaking through these circumstances. Job's wife, like many of us, says, why do you not just curse God and die? Job rightly declares, it is the Lord who has done these things. But then he responds beyond that. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. A paradox that we don't often want to think about. That God may be at work in the midst of the most horrific tragedies and disasters and calamities that may come upon us or upon those we love dearly. But nevertheless, a truth that if we begin to get our minds and our hearts in the midst of it, somehow, even an inkling, we began to see even more clearly and more with more beauty the wondrous love and grace and purposes of our Creator in the midst of all this melee of stuff that's going on around us that we can't make sense of. Such is the theme of the book of Ruth. A book that we're going to begin studying today. Of course, I will be gone next week, but then we'll return to when I come back. Some would just say that Ruth is just a a nice story. It has all the makings of, of a good story as you read through it. Some would say even a good love story. But think about it. While we, we recognize Ruth as the book that comes after Judges, which is significant for us, it, it likely was written much, much later than that. Almost certainly, very possibly after the return from exile. As this much later was clearly conveyed from generation to generation, it was inscripturated much later. Therefore, what I'm saying is that God inspired the writing of the book much later than the actual events for a reason. It was written after the reign of David, and we will understand that as we read the conclusion of the book. And as I said, most likely after the return from exile. But it's more than just a story. It seeks to convey the providential hand of God in the lives of obscure individuals to carry out his sovereign purposes, to accomplish his grand design. And so the author of this book, whom we don't know exactly who that is, people have made guesses or conjectures. Some would say possibly even Ezra was the one who wrote the story down. But the author nevertheless carefully narrates this story to point, uh, to point the audience toward this reality, the work of God. For the original audience, it was a reminder of how God brought hope out of hopelessness. Fullness out of famine and ultimately a king out of chaos. This little book was to serve in that day when it was written as an encouragement and a reminder that God could and would do that very same thing yet again. The author seeks to teach his audience, which includes us today, that with God there is, and listen carefully, with God there is no chance. Now make sure you hear that rightly. With God there is no chance, no coincidence, and no accidents. 
Even the obscure random circumstances in the lives of those who might seem unimportant are divinely directed to bring about God's glory and our greatest good. William Cowper, a poet and a hymn writer, captured this great truth in a a hymn entitled, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Anybody know this hymn? Well, you will. Here's the words. I'm not going to sing it. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning and fast, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. The story found in the pages of this book we call the book of Ruth reveals a frowning providence in the life of an obscure woman named Naomi. It is through the means of this frowning providence or this, as I've titled, this dark providence that God reveals not a vengeful act but a smiling face that will prove in the end to fill not only Naomi's life through divine provision, but the lives of an entire nation and ultimately even an entire world. So the book of Ruth serves to illustrate a great truth that is written in Scripture that believers today even often turn to in both joyful and difficult times, and you probably could quote it, and that is Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, For those who are called according to his purpose. So today, as by means of introduction, I want us to look at the first five verses of chapter 1 in the book of Ruth. So let's read that together and then we will begin to work through that. The author writes, In the days when the judges were judging, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Our Father, we ask in these moments that you would grant to us eyes that can see beyond the physical things in front of our face. The rather spiritual eyes that would allow us to to plumb the depths of the majesty of the word that you have left to encourage us with, to thrill us with, and to empower us to live forth the gospel in this life. And it's tucked away. And 
So, Father, we know that even uh, this small book that sometimes gets tucked away and sometimes just gets seen as a as a nice story is a operates in the very same way. It is your word that you have left for us for the sake of edifying your people and encouraging us and compelling us forth to live out the magnificence of our Creator who is at work in our midst to do marvelous things for your glory and for our good. So, Father, open our eyes that we may see the wonderful things within your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to work this morning just through these the details, the, the very brief details of this introduction in order to set up everything that's about to come. Now, if you haven't read through the book of Ruth or you haven't read it in recent days, then I want to encourage you to, to read it, uh, maybe even today, and, and read it several times through as we work our way through it. I assure you, I believe that you will read it by the time we're done in a way that you've never read it before. But in order for us to get there, we have to look at some of the what we would consider mundane details of the text. So the author begins with the phrase, in the days when the judges were judging. We're going to stop right there. We're going to deal with that for just a moment because it's significant. Now, if you pan through your Bible, for those of you who weren't really sure exactly where the book of Ruth was, and you just kind of started, if you got lucky enough to go to the beginning first and work from there, you found that it's not very far in. It, you know, you get past the first five books of the Bible, and then you get to Joshua, and then you get to Judges, and then you come to Ruth. And it makes sense that Ruth is there right after Judges because the author begins in the days when the judges were judging. But understand, in the original canon of the Hebrew Scriptures, Ruth followed the book of Proverbs. It was only moved to this location when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into the Greek. Because the Greeks were very like, much like us, categorically themes. So they put it here after uh, the book of Judges. But it followed the book of Ruth, which is ironic. This is free extra information. Because anybody know what the last chapter of Proverbs is all about? Proverbs 31. Come on, don't be shy. It's about the virtuous woman. And the language that's used to describe the virtuous woman, the the terminology there is repeated in only one other place in the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures. And that is in the book of Ruth. So Ruth actually becomes a very living illustration and expression of the Proverbs 31 woman. Now that's not necessarily pertinent to our purposes for uh, this phrase, but in the days when the judges were judging. So Like I said, it's likely this book was written much later as a reminder in a very specific time. Think about the history of Israel, right? They continually rebelled. Ultimately, after David and Solomon, the kingdom was divided, then Jerusalem was destroyed. They were taken away into captivity for seven years, and now they've returned. Can you imagine what they were thinking? Ruth serves as a reminder of the hope that God brings out of that kind of hopelessness. It was a pointing to something much greater than they could even begin to realize. But to get there, we need to understand the context of what's going on. And so this first phrase sets it for us because what did the days of the judges look like? 
Well, in order for us to do that, we need to go back and read the book of Judges. Well, we're not going to do that right now. And I know you're probably not going to go home and read all that right after lunch. Because you wouldn't make it, you'd fall asleep. But um, Because it's after lunch, not because it's boring. Um, But you know some about Judges. You probably remember a couple Judges, right? We, We know Gideon and Samson. And of course, let's don't forget Deborah. We don't leave the women out, right? We'll probably stop there, okay? There's, there's many others. But the point of the book of Judges is the cycle of sin of God's people. In fact, Judges is marked by a very uh, a significant phrase on the several occasions. In seven, chapter 17, verse 6, this is how the time and the era and the people were described. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's serious. It's not new. It's not even old. It's very present, but it's significant. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So in case we forgot it, it's repeated for us. This was the error of the judges. So what's what's going on in the time of the, the, the events of Ruth is that God's people were in constant rebellion. It's this cycle of sin. They would live lives their own way, do things according to their own standards, what they wanted, and then God would pour out judgment. Yes, a loving God would bring calamity and disaster upon them because he's angry and mad. No, as an act of grace so that God's people would be forced to stop and look at God who loves them. And that's what would happen. They would sin and God would pour out the calamity upon them, usually through the means of another nation oppressing them. And then they would begin to cry out to God, please, God, help us, deliver us. And so God would raise up a judge and this judge would lead them to victory over the oppressing nation. And they would live in peace once again. And guess what would happen? They would forget God. And then they would go through the cycle over and over again. If I'm, you don't mark me down on this one, but if I'm correct, there's 17 Judges listed in the book of Judges. You'd think they'd learn their lessons, wouldn't you? I mean, come on. But let's not be quick to judge, right? So this was the mark of the time. This is what was going on in the midst of the what's happening. So you imagine that the story is probably rooted in the fact that, that God is judging the nation by means of his grace, and because of it was resulting, and what we're going to look at right now is the next phrase, there was a famine in the land. By chance? Just a coincidence? The solar cycles weren't working out for them? No. God was acting. God was bringing about calamity upon his people. Again, be reminded, because he was vengeful, No. Yes, he is a wrathful God. The Bible teaches that. But when it comes to his people, even calamity is a a means and a tool that God uses to draw his people to himself. And so he punishes them. He he, uh, uh, judges them by bringing a famine on the land. And throughout the Old Testament, we find that famine is an often used judgment of God upon his people. So there was a famine in the land. So the, the author writes these things for us with purpose. It's not just a good story. These are important details to, to give us the understanding of where we're going to begin so that we'll fully understand where we're headed and the depths of the hand of God in the midst of the mundane things of life. 
God does chastise his people because he is a gracious God. In fact, the New Testament tells us in Hebrews, right? That God chastises those whom he loves. We typically use, we never experience the chastisement of God. Call it what you want, judgment, chastisement. As believers, we typically use the more positive. If we never experience that, oh, there's, it really raises two questions. Either we're perfect and we never sin and rebel against our God. Or it makes you wonder, are we one of his? Because he chastises those whom he loves. And that means literally those who are his, those who are his people. This is the kind of God that we serve. And this is the kind of God that he was even this many years ago in the midst of the events of the days of the judges. He was a a good, loving, gracious, holy, righteous God who was working in the midst of the lives of people to bring about his glory and their good. Now, the Bible then tells us that a man went from Bethlehem of Judea to sojourn in the fields of Moab. Very important for us not to miss this for for a number of reasons. Because this family traded their home for a foreign and an unfavorable land. In case you don't know anything about Moab, I'll, I'll help you see that in just a moment. But they left the land. Now, we don't understand it, but that phrase, the land, it's not talking about their, their, their little piece of property. It's talking about Israel. This is the land. This is very significant in the Old Testament. This is God's inheritance or God's people's inheritance from God. He portioned it out to him. It was, it was the very real experience of, of them being his people. Being outside the land was never a good thing. When you read in the Bible that they left the land, it's always bad. Because that's really reserved for God to do to his people when they rebel, right? The garden, what happened? God cast them out. And God did that again. He cast them out of the land when they did not live in accordance to it. So here's Elimelech leaving the land on his own. Now, whether that's a judgment to say he's such a bad guy, I don't know. The author doesn't give us enough details for us to say he's sinning by doing so or not. Because if we're reminded, God commanded Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three, during the time of famine, to leave the land for a period. And the author does write for us that a man went from Bethlehem, Judea, to sojourn in the fields of Moab. Maybe not necessarily a permanent thing. I don't know. The author doesn't tell us. But what's important in our story is not only what he does tell us, but what he doesn't tell us because there's a reason for that. But nevertheless, what we find is this family, during this time of, a, of, of famine, is abandoning their home. Where's their home? Not only in the land, but specifically where? In Bethlehem of Judea. And you probably knew this, but Bethlehem's made up of two words. Bait lechem. House, in the house of bread. And so this family decides that they're going to go outside. It had to been bad. And they're going into the fields of Moab of all places. And if you'll remember the stories, Moab, the descendants of Moab, began with Lot. We're not going to go back and rehearse the story, but they were the descendants of Lot's daughters. This was the people of Moab. But as though that weren't enough, when Israel was passing through uh, um, the wilderness... One of the struggles that they faced was that they were not allowed to pass through, uh, the, excuse me, not through the wilderness, but in Judges we find that they were not allowed to pass through the land of Moab. They would not let these people, God's people, go through their land. So they had to go all the way around. And this, this stuck in their minds. This was not a good thing. They were not favorable. 
And then also, if you read through the, the first five books, you find in Numbers 22, this is where the story of, you know the story of Balak and Balaam? Do you know that story? If you don't know the names, you know the talking donkey, right? Okay, now you know what I'm talking about. So, uh, Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel. Guess who he was the king of? The Moabites. And if you don't know that story, what happened there was they tried to curse him, but nothing but blessing would come out. Man, that made the king mad. And so finally at the end, the prophet then says, well, you know what? I can't curse him. God won't let me. Wow. <laughs> but let me tell you what to do. Just send your women in. <laughs> if you'll just send your women in, they'll fall for them, and then they'll go straying after foreign gods. And it worked. So Moabites were not very favorable. In fact, they were specifically banned from the temple in the history of Israel because of their not-so-wonderful relationship. So this is the land that they are sojourning in. Not a favorable place would not have been the first choice. They wouldn't have just got up and gone there. But they nevertheless did. And the author raises a series of questions through, as I said, the, the information he provides as well as what he doesn't write. Because the author doesn't seek to clarify whether Elimelech's decision was, you know, sin or not. And you'll hear whole sermons on that. Elimelech's sin, you know, by leaving the land. Maybe it was wrong, but the author doesn't draw our attention there. He leaves that out. So you can make your decision on that. It's not his point. The lack of information seeks to draw our attention away from the central individuals in the story. At this time, it's Elimelech. He's kind of the main character at the moment. Our attention is drawn away from him and will ultimately point us to the purposes and plan of God rather than the decisions of man. Oh, they're important. And one of my guiding verses in life, the mind of man plans his ways. Can you finish it? But... The Lord directs his steps. And so even in the midst of the the paradox of of our real choices that we make and God's sovereign directing of all things to carry out his purpose, folks, I can't reconcile all that. I just know it to be true that God is sovereign in our lives, but yet we make choices and through that God is working. So Elimelech makes a decision for his family and God is in the midst. Do you ever struggle with decisions? We struggle with little decisions, don't we? What about the big decisions? And you ever wonder, you ever stop and say, well, what if I make the wrong decision? You know, and, and I'm going to ruin everything for my family. For, for I mean, as you're trying to make good decisions. I'm not talking about for you and your family and, and trying to honor God. And you're thinking, well, what if, what if I, God wants me to do this and I do this? And you know the struggle, Right? Well, the assurance is that even in the midst of our inability to make fully informed decisions as we work and we strive and we make decisions, we do so fully knowing that God is in the midst. And he is sovereignly working in and through our lives, however insignificant we are. He is doing so to accomplish his purposes for his glory and for the good of his people. So then the Bible tells us that Naomi loses her husband. This is a pretty bleak story. You'd think I'd go beyond verse 5, right? Because it ends pretty sad. It's a dark providence. The author doesn't indicate the reason for Elimelech's death. Was it sin? Was it because he took his family outside the land? I don't know. He just says he died. Very direct, very blunt. So Naomi is now in a foreign land without a husband, living in a man's world. And it says she, she is 
She was left with her two sons. That's not a positive statement as it reads. She was left alone with her two sons. But there's still a glimmer of hope, right? She has her sons, but what happens next? Well, hey, things seem to brighten up. Maybe her sons marry Moabite women. Was that good? Was that bad? I don't know. He doesn't tell us. Should we affirm that decision and say, oh, there's hope? Or should we say, bad, they married foreign women, right? Well, the author's not drawing our attention to that for a reason. He doesn't want us to get caught up in the details in that debate. That's a debate for another place. We can go to Nehemiah at the end of Nehemiah and debate that one. But here, he just wants us to know. They married Moabite women. And again, the author refrains from evaluating this so that we don't get lost there. But then he tells us that they lived in Moab for 10 years. And what is absent from that marriage, those marriages? They lived there 10 years. And what does it not say? No children. Children are a very significant theme in the Bible, but also very significant for the culture in which they live. It wasn't. These folks weren't doing family planning, trying to limit their kids. Their kids were their heritage. Having children matter. Read the stories. Remember what happened when a woman wasn't having babies? It was like the world was at an end, right? And that's true even for women today, but more so in their culture. And they lived 10 years there and there was no mention of children. And why that becomes so significant is because... Up to this point, it's described Naomi's sons. The, the word for that is, and you know it, is Ben. That's the word. The Hebrew word for that is Ben. And that's how it tells us. They're, they're sons. They're the Ben, the Benai. Ben, sons. But now when it says her sons die without evaluation, it specifically says that the woman was left without her two Yaleds, not Benai. But her two yaleds. Now, you don't know Hebrew, but that doesn't matter. But the point is, that term comes back up at the very end of the story. And the author is using it to draw a tie between these, the beginning and the end. Because it's about children. The word yaled is like what they would use for little children, babies. These were grown men, but yet she was left without her, her babies. You know, mamas, you understand that, right? My baby. Doesn't matter how old they get, they're still your baby. And so the author intentionally does this for us because now what's in view for us is it's the son. So this is where it ends in the sermon. Well, not quite. A couple quick things in way of application, and then we'll conclude. Number one, I think I have this up. Yeah. The providence of God sometimes involves great difficulty. We've already seen this already. I've mentioned it. We see it in the story. It comes in chaos. It comes in the midst. That's the, the days of judges. It happens through famine, through loneliness and isolation, in the midst of death. That's all we've seen so far. All these things. And Naomi, check this out. Naomi doesn't go, Satan is out to get me. She later specifically said that all these things come from the hand of God. Her theology was good. She wasn't happy about it. But her theology was good. She recognized God as the one who alone has the power over life and death. And we're reminded of that, right? Because the Bible teaches us we should not worry about our lives. Why? By worrying, we can't add one single day to our lives. Why? Because God is sovereign over life and death. I I don't solve the tragedies of life. But I, I believe this. 
I, 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 I don't want to believe that there's death that happens because God couldn't do anything about it. Because that's a powerless God. I can't reconcile the paradox that comes, but I know the Bible teaches us that God has the power over life and death. And Naomi recognizes that. This has come from the hand of God. So when bad things happen to bad people, we're happy to give God the credit. Go God! Get them! Right? Now, you've never said that. You never thought that, right? Just me. Ah, we, we're, we're happy when bad things happen to those who deserve it. But when bad things happen to good people, we suddenly assume that God has nothing to do with it. He's absent in the midst of it. Think about it from this perspective. Acts 2. Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What did he just say? God planned it. Evil men did it. I don't know how that works. Do you? But I know it works. And I know that God God didn't go, I'll send Jesus and we'll hope something works out. He purposed and he planned the death of his son, didn't he? For us, so that we could be redeemed. A horrible event God purposed for his glory and for the good of his people. But yet it was still carried out through lawless men. Doing acts of sin which God had nothing to do with them sinning. That was their choosing. The darkest providence in world history was the death of God's only son. So much so that, and we're reminded of this recently, that God hung on the, Jesus hung on the cross. And what did he say? About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemme sabachthani. Say that real fast. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Never asked that question before, have you? But the answer came three days in the midst of, with an emphatic exclamation point. God working in the midst of calamity and disaster and tragedy. For his glory and the good of his people. We see it all over scripture. So the providence of God sometimes involves great difficulties. So think about it. In your own life, when difficulty comes, do you immediately run to the fact that it must be all about evil stuff? Or could you bury with that God is working in a way in your life to, to, to form you and shape you and point you in a grander, greater direction in your life to carry out his purposes in and through you? Another thing, the providence of God always has purpose. And I just said that. Ruth begins with a famine and ends at the conclusion of a great harvest. Ruth begins with the loss of a family and concludes with the birth of a child. Ruth begins with ten years of barrenness and concludes with ten generations of sons. Ruth begins with the absence of a king. In the days of Judges, there was no king in Israel, and it concludes with Israel's greatest king. Ruth begins with a family who, who are designated as Ephrathites. Another word you try to say real fast, it's kind of hard. Ephrathites from Bethlehem of Judah, and ends with a king who is of that very same clan and points forward to yet another king from that very same clan, but not just any king, the king of kings. Because we go on reading the story, the very next book, 1 Samuel, it begins, there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim and the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. 
And you wonder why the, the Bible puts some of this stuff in there. And that, there's, a, there's a reason for some of this stuff. And then we skip on down in 1 Samuel 17. Where we read, now David was the son of a Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons in the days of Saul. The man was already old and advanced in years. And if that's not enough, because we know the stories of David, you know this one. Micah 5, 2, 4, 2 through 4. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come, come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Folks, listen, catch the, 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 the story of Ruth in its context, written to God's people after David already lived and died. But it concludes with David. And this is after they would have been delivered up. God's, God's judgment had fallen on them in grace to turn them back. They'd been in exile. Now they're returning. And now this book is given to them by God's grace. And they read it, a story that they're reminded of, of how God worked through calamity and disaster in the midst of the lives of his people to bring about the greatest king in Israel. He's not done yet. There's still a king that's coming. So from an obscure family that nobody would know who they were if it weren't for this little four-chapter book. An obscure family in an uncertain time, God ensured the continuation of the promise that he made long ago to Abraham. Through you and your seed shall all the nations be blessed. And we find that that comes to conclusion. Paul writes for us in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So where we go with this? Two concluding things. First, in your greatest tragedy, God's still sovereign. Do you believe that? Or is that just one of those words you throw out there? Do you believe that God is sovereign in your life? Whether it's going good or whether it's going really bad, is God sovereign? Oh, he is but if you come to grips with that, in your greatest disasters, in your greatest difficulties, God is still sovereign. And then in your darkest hours, God is bringing light. I love this passage. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. There in that word veiled, that's the opposite of what we talked about today. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? The God who said in the beginning, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you can't seem to understand what's going on in your life, and you can be certain that God is working out all your trials for His glory... And ultimately for the good of his people. And I hope that it includes you. His promises are sure no matter what the circumstances are. I know we all have our excuses. But you don't understand what I'm going through. I've said it many, many times. 
You just don't understand how difficult what I'm facing is. But the truth remains. God is working in the midst of your joys. He's working in the midst of your sorrows and your grief and your tragedies to accomplish his purposes. Even in the lives of those who are, for lack of a better word, nobodies. You know, for a guy like me, that just that thrills my heart. I will never amount to much of anything. But to think that God, who created the universe, will work in me and through me to magnify his glory and bring about the good of his people. Wow. That's amazing. There's an old song. I don't even know how long ago. But trust his heart is the title of the song. And here's the chorus. God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you can't, when you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Don't trust your heart. Trust his heart, which is revealed to us through the pages of the word he has left us. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet. Oh, sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err. And scan his work in vain. Ah, God's not up to anything. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain in his timing. He will make it plain in your life, in my life. That's why we have a reason to be excited. Because no matter what circumstances surround us right now, now I'm talking about the weather, but whether it's sunshine or rain, whether we know what the next step is in our lives or whether we don't, we can look forward with great excitement because God is working in you and in us for his glory and for the good of his people. That it open to be excited. And I pray that it overwhelms your heart and your life. So much so that you just don't even know what to do. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to sing a song of response as we close our service together. Now I know I've just, I've just regurgitated a lot of stuff at you. And I pray that the Spirit of God is working in your hearts to begin making you think through some of this. And maybe he's already just pounding you. I don't know. That's his job, not mine. But I do know that we must, when we hear the word of God, we must respond. We respond for it. Or against it. And my prayer this morning is that as we take a time to reflect over that. As we sing. That we will be asking God. How am I supposed to respond to this? Is there something I'm supposed to do? Is there something I'm supposed to change? The way I think? Or, or an action? What is it God that you need. You desire me to do. In order for you to more fully work in me. And through me. For the, your glory. And for the good of your people. So as we sing. That's what we should be contemplating. And it may require that you need to respond here in some way. And I'm available if that's, if that's what you need to do.
Whether you need to pray where you are, where you come here pray, whether you want me to pray with you, but you need to respond. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in the sovereign grace of God in Christ Jesus, who became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God, then today's a great day to do that. There's never a better time. And I would love to take some more time to talk to you about that if you need that. So let me know during this time or after our service is over. But respond for the glory of God and for your own good as well. Stand as we sing.